entering the Freedom Hut. President Trump cuts off aid to countries in Central America that he says aren't doing enough to prevent the migrant invasion from continuing. There's also the possibility of shutting down our southern border. Is this the answer? And what should Trump do next? That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton. Your mission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. You think I can speak for three hours without a phone call? Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. So Mexico's tough. They can stop them, but they chose not to. Now they're going to stop them. And if they don't stop them, we're closing the border. They'll close it. And we'll, we'll keep it closed for a long time. I'm not playing games. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Trump said it. He's not playing games. The border is a crisis. You got caravans on the way. You've got thousands and thousands of days surrendering at the border, trying to abuse our system, doing everything in their power to make sure that they can stay in this country. I saw pregnant women showing up. Some look to be third trimester pregnant last week in El Paso. They know they're going to have a U.S. citizen child. This is a scam, folks. It's not right what's going on. These individuals are enriching the cartels. They are posing a threat to themselves by putting them by putting themselves in these situations. And certainly their children are at risk as well. They're skipping the immigration line. They're completely uh, flouting our immigration laws. And it's just too much. It's wrong. It has to stop. And the president is now considering some pretty dramatic measures like shutting down the border, which I know all the all the millennials out there, you can just write the avocado toast jokes yourself. But uh, people now are, are very concerned because basically all avocados in the U.S. come from Mexico. And so if you shut down the border, there's going to be a massive avocado shortage that occurs. Um, but the border can't wait anymore. Uh, this is not sustainable. You can't have Border Patrol saying that they're overwhelmed, that they're at the breaking point, And the Democrats are just sitting on the sidelines really cheering this whole thing on. They think this is great. If nothing else, it certainly makes Trump's case that he is the man for border security, that the wall and the building of the wall is going to be a game changer. It certainly makes that more difficult. We are in the midst of an illegal immigration tsunami, the likes of which the country has really never seen before. Yes, the numbers in the early 2000s and the 90s were higher, although we're getting close to those numbers. But those were almost entirely single male Mexican migrants, many of whom were just coming into the U.S. for seasonal work and who were deported rapidly or quickly deported back into Mexico. That is not what is going on here. That's not what's happening. You have people that are coming into the U.S. claiming asylum, many times defensive asylum. So you have to this is important. People say, Buck, why are they being apprehended if they're just going to claim asylum? Because their first move is to just try to get into the U.S. in many cases. They try to many of them try to sneak in or they try to come in between ports, uh, ports of entry, 
which is not legal. That's why they're apprehended. They are arrested because you no one is allowed to just go into the U.S. not through a port of entry. You have to go through a legal port of entry. But if you do get in, guess what? You're here. So then why even go through the few days of processing? Why put yourself through that? So you get two shots. You can try to come in between the ports of entry illegally. And you can then, if you get caught, claim defensive asylum. Not showing up at a port of entry and saying, hey, I want to claim asylum. That's the way you're supposed to do it. But keep in mind, they're also being coached to lie about why they should get asylum. Trump gets that this is a scam and he's got to do something. Now, you know, the threat to close down the border is obviously very contentious. uh, But Kellyanne Conway, for example, says that it's not an idle threat. Play 15. Certainly isn't a bluff. You can take the president seriously. We have never seen a surge like this. It's coming from the Northern Triangle Company. So many of those kids are already separated by their parents, from their parents, before they even arrive here. Is Secretary Nielsen saying, we're in a meltdown, we're at the breaking point? It's not a bluff, she says, and we are at the breaking point. I mean, the Border Patrol guys that I'm seeing are like, look, I, I can't, I, you know, this is what they're telling me last week, can't do my job the way I'm supposed to do it. I can't tell you that they're, the cartels aren't smuggling in drugs after there's a surrender of 100 people in one place, and we got to get them all through transportation, got to get them checked out medically, got to make sure they're okay and make sure everyone's safe. And, you know, it ties down all manpower, all resources. It's going to be over 100,000 for last uh, for this past month in March. They're going to publish the number in the next week or so. You're going to see. And when you're at over 100,000, I mean, that's crisis level. You know, I mean, you know, sovereignty is a necessary component for a functioning nation state. If you do not have sovereignty, which includes control, over who comes and goes, over who is a citizen and who is not. You don't really have a country. You have something else. And we are sliding into that state of affairs of of quasi-sovereignty. We have a quasi-open border right now. If you show up with a kid and you know what to say, the border for all intents and purposes is open. You will get into the country. You will get into the country faster right now if you show up with a child at the southern border from a non-contiguous, it can't be Mexican because they'll just they will deport you back to Mexico, uh, but from a non-contiguous country, so those so-called northern triangle countries, uh, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, if you are from one of those countries, or maybe even from some countries further south that there's concern there might be a surge of migrants making their way up from Venezuela, I saw two Cubans arrested wearing big American, matching American flag T-shirts. They know the score. They know what's going on. People are coming from all over. Why put yourself through the process? Why fill out all the paperwork and all the time and the waiting? We need to have a national conversation. I mean, there needs to be a focus on what is happening down at the southern border because we didn't vote for this. This is not what the law says. This is not what we voted for. And ultimately, the immigration system is supposed to benefit the people here. We are not, you know, America is not a soup kitchen. We are not the world's charity. We are a country. And if a country cannot control its borders, it ceases to be a country. I mean, this is foundational stuff for a nation state. And Democrats have no interest whatsoever 
in handling this problem in any serious way. They keep saying we need more resources down there. Well, just to process more of the people that are showing up, lying, claiming asylum and staying inside the country. The really contentious part of this is going to be, okay. we we need to have more resources in the immigration courts um, and we need to clarify. Congress needs to clarify who qualifies for asylum. You have to be able to prove, not just tell a story, prove to a judge that you have a credible fear of political persecution. Not my neighborhood is crappy, not my country is dysfunctional, uh, and not I want a better job. None of those things make someone a bad person. I don't have any animus toward people that come to America for those reasons and, 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 and abuse our process. I mean, if you come legally, great, welcome. But if you're abusing the process for those reasons, I understand why people do that. But it's not okay. They're not supposed to be entering the United States. And this lawlessness is just going to be get more lawlessness. You know, there's going to be greater calls for amnesty. There's going to be a massive push in the Democrat. Just wait for it. In the 2020 election, Democrats are going to run on, on amnesty. And that's lights out for the Republican Party if they win and they get that. And they have enough of a majority in the House and, and the Senate to pass it. And I'm not even sure Republicans will hold the line against them at that point. And if you amnesty 20, 25 million people in this country who came here illegally for no other reason than the Democrat Party is going to be the party of amnesty, it's all going to be to the benefit of the Democrat Party. Right. They're they're going to vote Democrat. I mean, if, if you were given legal status by one party, you know, this is like rent control in New York. People are single issue voters because anyone who wants to touch my rent control. If you live in New York City, it's so expensive. You know that that's the most important thing to anyone. Well, if you get citizenship or even just permanent legal status from one political party, you're understandably going to be a single issue voter for that party and probably your children, and your children's children. Because you're going to view that as. You know, your American story now. So the violation of law will have been rewarded on a massive scale. And what we are in the middle of, as I said, is is a tsunami of illegal entry in the United States under the Trump administration. I mean, if this is happening under Trump, what do you think it's going to be like under a Warren administration or under a, a Beto administration or, you know, whomever? These Democrats are basically all open borders now. They do not want enforcement. They do not want laws on the books to be treated like laws. And so what recourse does Trump really have? You know, I I wrote an article today in The Hill and I said, you know, Congress has to act. That's true. I'm right. But I know Congress isn't going to. They don't want to take a tough vote on this. And it's, you know, it's not just a question of it being a tough vote. Because there are some political ramifications. There's also social ramifications for it. You know, there's also, at some level, an understanding side of this issue. People are going to look at you differently. They're going to think of you differently. And a lot of these politicians, you know, especially on the right, they like to be liked. And it's not going to make them happy. It's not going to make them feel warm and fuzzy. If all of a sudden they are voting for something that would result in a lot of legal processes that end in deportation. But you see, this is where it all breaks down. If you don't believe that people that are led into the country claiming asylum and don't get asylum should be deported, you do not believe in immigration laws. 
So Democrats, you say, well, you know, they should get their process. They should get their process. And I say, okay, at the end of the process, when over 90% of them don't get asylum, what should happen? They get to stay. That's an open border. We are accepting a massive, not just loophole, but a massive hole in our immigration system that is not going to be filled, that will remain open, and that makes a mockery of the rest of our legal process at the border. The border is in a state of slow collapse. More and more people are going to come. And we have no means right now of stopping them. The president shutting down the border, that's an extreme measure, folks. There will be economic ramifications of that. That's that's not something that I want to see happen. Remember, that that means you're shutting down commerce. That means you're you're preventing people from being able people go back and forth to work across the southern border. People come in to go shopping. When I was in El Paso, they told me that the one of the outlet malls there, they, they estimate $20 million of spending there over the course of a year uh, is from Mexicans who, are le- who legally cross to shop there. I mean, you're going you're gonna to hurt a lot of businesses. And yes, you're probably going to run out of avocados. So this is a, a finally now a top priority issue That's getting the attention. And I knew it would. I mean, I've been telling you the numbers are going to speak for themselves in some way here. I mean, over 100,000 in a month? Think of how many people we're talking about here who are coming in and who are abusing this process. This doesn't include the million legal citizens and green green card holders we're going to add to the American family this year. I mean, this is in addition to all legal immigration. This is in addition to a half a million visa overstays a year. I mean, you look at our system and it's a complete mess. Democrats have no will to fix it. They don't want to fix it. And Republicans don't have the courage to fix it. So what are we left with? We're left with a system that is heading toward collapse meaning that there, there'll be no person who can seriously say we have immigration laws that are enforced and that are meaningful. It's all just uh, h- how you can scam it. You know, it, it'll turn into like the permitting process in East Germany. You know, well, what do you got to do here? How do you know whose palms do you have to grease or what do you have to do? The system's a joke is what I'm saying. It's becoming a joke. And Congress is to blame. Shutting down the border, I don't think fixes the problem, but at least it gets us closer to understanding the severity of the problem and tackling this with some seriousness. I have been sounding the alarm as loudly as I can on this. I have gotten the White House to read stuff I've written. I've gotten the president to retweet stuff I've written on the border. I was down there last week so I could bring you ground truth about what is happening. And this is the ground truth. We are in the midst of an illegal alien tsunami. And we have no realistic plan to stop it right now because the people in charge refuse to do their jobs. The people that make laws won't change and clarify existing statutes. And now the word is really out. And you're seeing it reflected in the numbers. I mean, over over 100,000 people. It's going to be over 100,000 next month, too. I mean, once you get to 100, 150, you know, 175,000, I mean, now you're just talking about it's it's just a free-for-all. We are heading for free-for-all illegal immigration territory. President Trump needs to stop this 
Third-party safe agreement with Mexico is one way. They've got one going. They need to expand it dramatically. We need to move infrastructure down to the border. We need, we need more immigration courts. We need clarity with what the immigration courts are going to do. We need expedited, uh, we need expedited removal proceedings, people that can be quickly deported. Countries that won't take those who need to be deported should have their visas cut off because that's what existing law says. If you won't take the people we're deporting back to you that are yours, you don't get any more visas in the United States. We need to enforce that law. We didn't enforce the law in general. It's not happening, and we are dealing with the consequences. Now, I've got more on this and a creepy Uncle Biden stuff to talk about. We got a lot of show, my friends. I'm coming to you live from Savannah, Georgia. I love this town, man. This is a great place. Georgia's a great state, but Savannah's, Savannah's like this, you know, the, the, the pretty southern belle of these coastal cities here. All right, I got to go to break. I'm just waxing philosophical about how much I like Savannah. I'll be right back. When the president says he's going to close the border, that is a totally unrealistic boast on his part. What we need to do is focus on what's happening in Central America, where three countries are dissembling before our eyes and people are desperately coming to the United States. The president's cutting off aid to these countries will not solve that problem. Okay, so the president's cut off aid, but guess what? The aid doesn't do anything for the poor folks in those countries. The aid doesn't work. Anybody who knows anything about foreign aid, especially to countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, knows it doesn't work. It just helps the people in the regime, usually the people in place at the top of the pyramid. But what is Trump supposed to do? Supposed to just sort of keep keep paying? Keep helping out these governments when they won't do more to stop these flows? This idea that liberals have that we're going to fix desperately poor countries like Guatemala and Honduras, we just need more aid or we're going to fix them? That is completely absurd. We have no chance of fixing Honduras, nor should we try. It's not our problem. We aren't in charge. And, you know, we always forget that the moment we try to take charge in these countries, oh, we're imperialist and we're interfering. Fine. Let those countries do what they're going to do. Let's not pretend that it's our fault that they're so dysfunctional. You know, go stand in El Paso and look across the border at Juarez. One of them is working really well. The other has got a lot of problems, all right? It's not our fault. Much more coming up, team. Stay with me. When we look into our history, when our party was boldest, the time of the New, New Deal, the Great Society, the Civil Rights Act, and so on, we had and carried super majorities in the House, in the Senate. We carried the presidency. They had to amend the Constitution of the United States to make sure Roosevelt did not get reelected. And, uh, we, you know, there were so many extraordinary things that were happening in that time that were uniting working people. Nice try, AOC, but we have a fantastic runner-up prize for you. It is not the case. It is not the case that the Constitution was amended to prevent FDR from being elected. But does, that, does anybody on the left care when AOC just makes stuff up? Does anyone really, does it bother them? You know, she, I've seen this after all the fact checks of Trump, right? Fact check, Trump has lied 50 million times. Fact check, Trump lied 15,000 times today. I mean, they're just such a bunch of little whiny babies you know fact check trump says his hotels are the best lie it's like well maybe they are the best how do you know right I mean, it's ridiculous they think exaggeration and hyperbole and 
and salesmanship need to be fact-checked all the time. That's one thing that the media does. Unless you're AOC, then you might be morally right, even if you're factually wrong. That's the way that they, you know, look, this, this, is, this is what they do. There's a, a dishonesty at the, at the heart of, well, at the heart of the mainstream media's daily operations, the way that, the way that they conduct themselves. Uh, but she was obviously wrong there. But this was the one that I thought was, or this is where it starts to get even more interesting. Um, when asked if her plan is socialism, listen to what she said over the weekend about that. Listen to her response. Play three. Sounds like socialism. That sounds big. No, I'm serious. Like, that's yeah. a big. You're talking like, a, okay, all right. <laughs> yes. So. Good. But, but I'm saying not everyone applauds when they hear well, that, right? They're yeah. like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. You're talking about this huge mobilization. This, and I'm like, I don't trust the government can pull this off. Well, you know, here's, some, here's a couple of issues here. One is that, you know, if you want to bring up these labels and this, that, and the other and have that whole conversation, that's a whole other thing. But the one thing that we cannot rebuke and the one thing that we cannot deny is that climate change is a problem of market failure and externalities in our economics. <laughs> This does not mean that we change our entire structure of government. But what it means is that we need to do something, something. And that is what this solution is about. Blather. Just lots of blather. Meaningless, meaningless phrases strewn together. You know, it reminds me of Forgetting Sarah Marshall, there's the uh, the character Aldous Snow, who's played by that generally unfunny British comedian, um, who was actually pretty good in in, in save or er, forgetting Sarah Marshall though, and he does you know he's a British rocker and he has a song who's very self indulgent and very new agey and he's a song you know we've got to do something we got to do something and it just keeps <laughs> that's pretty much what AOC is telling you. We got to do something. It's like, do what? What does that mean? But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez embodies a kind of emotion on the left of there's all this injustice, there's all this oppression, and if we just all run at it and take this sweeping governmental action that throws history aside and you know then we'll be able to make this incredible progress and all this oppression and misery and sadness will go away and this utopianism is is the failed is the failed promise that we have seen time and again in the 19th century the 20th century and now the 21st this is the central ideological fight of our era should you have the government just make massive decisions for people all people because they say so and it's really the basis of authoritarianism too why should i do that well because force because we make you because we know better and then when confronted on the stupidity of ideas you'll see more of what you heard from miss aoc here who when asked about this green new deal proposal she put out that did have an accompanying frequently asked question about cow farts and plane travel that was real and they pretended it wasn't what did she do oh in classic politician fashion she decided to throw a staffer an imaginary staffer under the bus play four it had some things that people yeah. thought were ridiculous and radical, like yeah, anyone that was uh, unable or unwilling to work would mm-hmm. be guaranteed a job. Yeah, the FAQ yeah. was withdrawn and said it was preliminary, a draft. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of fight about that. Like, yeah. do you 
Do you think you guys rolled it out the right way? Did you well, bring it on any on yourself? What I will say is that there, I definitely had a staffer that had a very bad day at work and, um, and did release a, a working draft early. So I get that that's what they're seizing on. Um, no, no, no. That I know she's 29, but you know to blame the intern basically, which is what she's doing. Oh, you know what happened there? The intern made a mistake. That thing was out for hours. Released a working draft. Come on. So she's lying. I mean, I don't know if anyone cares about that or not, but she she is lying about what happened. But she's AOC, so once again, the rules are different. The rules change based on how much the Democrats like you. Um, and we'll just see if uh, they continue to prop her up. I mean, I, I do think that she is a dangerous, a dangerous ignoramus, uh, dangerous in terms of policy, but the left is obsessed, and they keep saying we're obsessed. I'm like, we're not the ones that made this person the de facto leader of our party. Uh, real quick here, there's a big focus on Obamacare uh, right now from the administration. I just wanted to note that this, I'm worried about how Republicans are going to handle this fight. Uh, over at CBS, they asked Bernie Sanders about this. Play seven. To be fair, Senator, you want to replace Obamacare, too. You want to replace it with Medicare for all, this government-run, government-financed program. So if the courts strike right. down the ACA, does that ultimately help you? No, no. Look, uh, yes, Trump has an idea on health care. His idea is to throw 32 million Americans off of the health insurance they have, doing away with insurance for kids who are 26 years of age or younger who are on their parents' plans, <clears throat> doing away with the protections that the ACA has for pre-existing conditions, Margaret. That means if you have cancer, All you right, have yeah, heart disease, we, we, you we have get it, We get it. Okay, so, so this is what I, I just want to warn Republicans about. I'm worried about this, that they are going to go into this fight once again, and they're going to be a bunch of nerds from think tanks about it and say, oh, we can bring down costs by markets. And, uh, You're going to be up against two things, pre-existing conditions, and a whole lot of people got insurance through Obamacare basically for free through Medicaid. What is your answer to that? And Trump and the Republicans need an answer that sounds good. I'm not trying to make this a superficial thing, but it needs to sound good to people or the Democrats are going to win on this thing again. In my ideal world, I'd want him to resign. The Virginia people need to know who it is that they elected. They need to know. I think the Virginia people, the voters of Virginia, have a right to know, you know, both my story and Meredith's story, right? I think there should be a public hearing. That was Vanessa Tyson, Dr. Vanessa Tyson, the accuser of Justin Fairfax, who is Lieutenant Governor of Virginia. She was talking to Gail King there, and she, she wants Fairfax to resign. I mean, she told her her story in in some, you know, gut punching kind of detail. I mean, it's not not a not a thing that anybody uh, can listen to and not feel um, upset by. You know, here, here's I mean, we'll just just some of, of what the description is here. Here's Vanessa Tyson. Oh, this is Lieutenant Governor, a Democrat in Virginia. And this is in the Me Too era when we have Democrat Democrats, the ones who have set up this standard that, you know, women have a right to be believed. That is their standard. 
Now, I don't agree with the way that they set up and use that standard, and I certainly don't agree with the hypocrisy based on politics around that standard, right? It, it really is accusers have a right to be believed if it's an if it's an enemy of the Democratic Party or a Republican. If an accuser accuses a Democrat, whoa, whoa, then we need due process. See, I'm in favor because it's a principle. It's not just a game that I'm playing. I'm in favor of due process for all accused of all political parties. That's what principled people do. Those who just want to play politics, they look at the D or the R and they make their they make their decision about whether somebody has a right to defend himself or or herself. Uh, this is going to be a little tough to hear, but he this is this is what was aired in this interview with Gail King, Vanessa Tyson describing. The assault, I mean, you know, we, we heard Blasey Ford. She gave testimony. She's considered a hero. She's like woman of the year for all these things. You know, she was lionized by the media. And I think she was a liar. I mean, I think Blasey Ford is a liar. She might be delusional. I think she maybe believes what she said, but that doesn't make it true. It's not the same thing. Um, I find Vanessa Tyson, and, and, and people would accuse me of this, and I understand. They'd say, oh, Buck, that's so convenient because it does fit into this political you know you like kavanaugh you i I actually don't have anything against fairfax i mean he's a democrat but i I don't know anything about him i don't know what he does i I don't really know i think he went to columbia law school and he's lieutenant governor in virginia and that's what i know about the guy really and not not a whole lot beyond that i don't spend a lot of time thinking about virginia state politics because i live in the communist enclave of washington dc but i find vanessa tyson entirely credible here is her and you know you'll hear it for yourself this is what she, she said when describing the assault, play 18. And guides me towards the bed. And we're still kissing, mm-hmm. right? And it's completely consensual. Mm-hmm. He guides me to the bed and then, you know, he sits down on the bed. And what happens from there, you know, it, it, we start kissing lying down, but on the very I- edge of the bed. Okay, so I'm following. And then yeah. what happens? Mm-hmm. We're kissing lying down and we're kissing. Like, so our heads are mm-hmm. level with each other. Mm-hmm. And then it was like my neck didn't work. What do you mean? It, 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 it was like I couldn't, I couldn't feel my neck. I couldn't hold my head up. He's using his hand on the back of my neck. And I still didn't know what was going wrong. I thought there was something wrong with my neck. And he's pushing down and pushing down, and I couldn't hold my neck up. And I didn't know what was going on. I honestly didn't know what was going on. And then the next thing I know, like my head is like literally in his crotch and I'm choking and gagging. And, you know, I couldn't say anything because I'm choking and gagging. Horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. It sounds entirely credible to me. There was a, 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 a what started as a consensual sexual encounter. So this isn't an I wasn't there, I was never in that city situation. Uh, this is a was it consensual or not situation, right? That's Those are usually the two ways that these kinds of sexual assault accusations, those are two pathways they tend to go down. She sounds entirely credible. Where, where are all, I mean, I just have to ask the question, where are all the feminists who are outraged? Where are all the uh, leftist organizations that are, are demanding that this man, the the lieutenant governor of Virginia, he's an African-American politician, uh, you know, uh, Ivy League educated guy. Right. Where are the people demanding that he resign? 
Now, I'm not saying that I agree with that per se, because it is very it's very tricky when you get into is an allegation itself enough for you to lose your career, lose your reputation. I believe in due process. What is due process when there won't be a criminal proceeding? It's a very, a very fair, a very fair question. It's a fair question to ask. Um, but I just can't help but note the stunning hypocrisy here around what is considered okay for a Democrat to remain. He's going to remain in office. You know, initially there were some people calling for him to step down. By the way, there's more than one accuser too. So you know that that also. As you, all you can do is try to gauge this yourself. There's no one's going to present. There's no evidence to present beyond the testimony. There's or or their stories. It's really not testimony because it's not under oath yet. But there's nothing. All you have is his word and her word. But when you have another woman as well with a kind of similar story, that also shows this guy, or or alleges that this guy is a vindictive, forceful predator. Really, I mean that's that's what is being alleged here. When you have another woman willing to come out and say that, I mean, I think you have to factor that into the you have to factor that into the whether you believe them column or not. And, and you know, I, I think these women are highly credible. So what do we do about that? What are the Democrats going to do? Well, they're going to do nothing. Remember, Fairfax is tied into this whole Virginia political debacle of Northam in the blackface and, you know, uh, Herring in blackface too and herring said northam should resign and then a few days later he goes well i wore blackface once too i think at a party northam says it wasn't even him wearing the blackface so northam is a liar and a pathetic one at that and fairfax gets accused of sexual assault that same week i would also note that there are i've heard there's some people that are very involved in virginia politics they think that it was democrats that leaked the or that rather that helped push the fairfax story uh to the forefront you know, they, they, that, that, that oppo was kind of out there. Democrats knew about it and, and that Northam or Herring, probably Northam, decided to feed Fairfax to the lions to save himself. But all three of them have stayed in office. All three, no resignations, no one steps down. Just remember, that is how the Democrats play the game. They do not care how blatantly, how egregiously they violate the standards that they pretend to hold for themselves. They just want power. It is all about the acquisition, maintenance, and utilization of power. I find these women highly credible uh, when it comes to Fairfax. And I find the way that he's conducting himself to be very questionable. So they're credible and he's questionable in the aftermath of these allegations uh, that Democrats aren't unified in calling for him to step down uh, just goes to show you that me too for them has always been at the political level something that they intended to weaponize against the opposition and give a pass to their own when they can when they can give a pass to their own on um, but i have not forgotten about the political debacle in virginia and we'll continue to keep an eye on that one uh, speaking of political debacles joe biden or just a debacle joe biden Creepy Uncle Joe, it turns out. And this should not be surprising. Um, I've been saying that as soon as the protection of the media has is taken off Biden, people are going to see him for what he really is. And we're starting to see at least a little bit of it, which is that uh, this guy's got some boundary issues, to put it mildly. That's coming up next. I have no reason not to believe her. I believe Lucy Flores. And 
Joe Biden needs to give an answer. Her point is absolutely right. It is not acceptable that when a woman goes to work or is in any kind of environment that she feels anything less than comfortable and safe. It's very disconcerting. Women have to be heard and we should start by believing them. So you have bad weekend for Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a political mediocrity and not to be mean, but I think an intellectual mediocrity as well. And if he's going to run the, you know, if he wants to be leader of the free world, I think we're allowed to judge these things harshly. And I will not an impressive guy, a very calculating sleazy switch whenever he has to, for whatever reason, kind of politician. I mean, not, not a man of particular principle or character. And people I know who have worked with him and, and around him do not have uh, positive things to say about his character. Um, but the media was willing to cover for him for years. Why? Because he was Obama's wingman, right? He was Obama's number two. And Obama was, if you were a liberal journalist, if you were a believing Democrat, Obama was the greatest thing to have happened to any country in the history of the world. Obama did all those amazing things like give us the crappy Obamacare plan and there were anti-cop riots where neighborhoods were burned down and uh, Syria was a total disaster and every foreign policy challenge he touched he made worse and the economy was the slowest growth out of a recession since the Great Depression. And right. But Obama was amazing. He was a messiah. So you, you couldn't get away with criticizing his number two, Joe Biden. But all along, I, I've you'll notice you'll you'll remember this because I've been saying it in recent weeks. Biden's just not impressive. And there's a lot of stuff that if it weren't for the media's desire to run cover for him would be problematic for any other politician. And it has been well known for years. People have been writing articles about it. People are very aware of it that Biden is kind of a creepster. That there's something a little off about him. That the way that he interacts with and, and approaches and touches women isn't normal. Well, now a woman who is running for office, a Democrat, and I think she was running for lieutenant governor. Producer Mike, let me know if I'm getting any of these details wrong. Um, uh, Mike, Mike is always, don't worry guys, Mike is always there to throw a flag if I go off the rails and start saying anything that's, you know, that's not true. You know, like when I tell people that mayonnaise is better on French fries than ketchup, like Mike is there to throw a flag and tell me that I'm not American anymore. So he's got your back. Like Mike is the, he is the ombudsman of Americanness on this show and doesn't let me get too, uh, I do have to say mayonnaise is not the worst thing in the world. Exactly, dude. See, it's not it's not like, you know, it's not an either or situation. I just think that mayonnaise is superior to ketchup as a something for French fries. But especially the fancy that, burger joints to give you like the um, mayonnaise with flavors in it and stuff. Yeah. Oh, a, you mean aioli? Yes, I Sir, do. Don't, don't 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 tempt me. I'm, I'm going to start. I'm going to eat some. Aioli. I got to find some. Aioli. I'll make my own and eat some in a break. But anyway, so my, Mike is there to make sure that I, that I get the details right here. So let me. Let me go into a little bit of what happened. Right? Why did Biden have such a bad weekend? Uh, he hasn't even announced yet for the presidency. He's not even in the game yet. But here we are being told that uh, that Biden's, well, seeing that Biden's having a rough time. And you get all these Democrats that have, uh, have come forward saying that they believe uh, this woman. And, and, oh, there's a second woman, too. We'll get to that. We'll get to that for sure. That this woman, Lucy Flores, who was running for, I think it was lieutenant governor in Nevada, 
was and Biden showed up. And look, it's tough to get anybody excited. I had a friend run for lieutenant governor recently in uh, Idaho. I mean, it's it's tough to get people excited about the lieutenant governor's ticket. So when when the vice president of the United States is going to show up on the stump and help you out, it's exciting, right? So Lucy Flores is told, oh, well, well Biden's show up at this event and try to give you the Biden boost. And she described what this is while he's vice president, folks. This isn't like back at a fraternity party in the 80s that no one has any memory of or whatever. This is just a few years back in the Obama presidency. And Lucy Flores wrote she first wrote an article. Now she's been giving interviews about this, what it was like dealing with creepy Joe Biden. Play 10. Let's go back to that day in November 2014. Uh, the, the vice president Biden has come to Nevada for a campaign event. You're running for lieutenant governor. You're both backstage waiting to go on stage. What happened next? Well, it happened also suddenly. We, it's, you know, anyone who's ever been at a rally recognizes that there is just chaos. There's a lot of energy that everyone's running back and forth. Um, Eva Longoria was there. We were all lined up next to the stage. Eva was in front of me. Joe Biden was behind me. I'm kind of preparing myself to give these remarks. It's the very last days before the election. And uh, very unexpectedly and out of nowhere, I feel Joe Biden put his hands on my shoulders, get up very close to me from behind, lean in, smell my hair, and then plant a slow kiss on the top of my head. It was shocking because you don't expect that kind of intimate behavior. You don't expect that kind of intimacy from uh, someone so powerful and someone who you just have no relationship whatsoever to, to touch you and to feel you and to be so close to you in that way. Wow. Uh, Mike. I know the answer to this question, but I just want to get on the record. Um, have you ever or has any guy that you respect and, and know in a workplace environment gone up to a female colleague, sniffed her hair and kissed her head? Uh, yeah, no. Um, That's a no. Yeah. This not, unless, not, unless, not unless the bet was, hey, watch me go get punched in the face. Or fired. Right. Exactly. Yeah, like yeah. If, if someone's like, hey, Buck, I'll give you a million dollars because you're going to get fired. Uh, you know, you, you maybe you think about it short of that. Uh, this is wildly inappropriate. I mean, look, yep. it's not it's not sexual assault. People that are you know, that's it's not a. I mean, you might be able to say it's some kind of a simple assault or something. It's not a criminal. It's it's not a criminal matter. It's a creepy matter. It's very very creepy. But this has been known. Now there's a whole montage out there. There's people that have done some research on this. There's a a video that the Daily Caller was sending around today of Biden talk. I don't even know what the, what he's talking to the woman about, but he meets some woman, shakes her hand, and then, like, goes to touch her cheek with his hand, like, to, like, kind of, you know, feel her face a little bit or something. And it's so weird. And he does this, and there are all these photos of him where he's doing this, like, nuzzling into females who are leaning away from him thing, and it's just creepy it is creepy i'm sorry it's not okay there's something weird this guy's missing some part of you know nor normalcy that would tell you don't do that stuff and yet still because biden is the number one according to the polls democrat to run for the presidency he is the choice of the establishment it is 90% Obama nostalgia that is pushing Biden to the front of the Democrat pack. But because of that, you have people like Mika over at MSNBC 
who will say bizarre things to try to defend this weirdo. Play 11. There's a lot of things I know about Joe Biden. I've known him for a long time. He is extremely affectionate, extremely flirtatious in a completely safe way. Um, I am sure that somebody can misconstrue something he's done. But as much as I can know what's in anyone's heart, I, I don't think that there's a, a bad intent on his part at all. I mean, Mika just made this worse, by the way. And I think she could tell as she's saying it, she goes, he is extremely, 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 extremely flirtatious in a gets up real close to you and like nibbles on your ear and whispers sweet nothings into it right in front of your husband as you're about to take the stage running for office kind of kind of way. But it's not creepy, though. No, it's it's normal ear nibbling whispering nuzzling stuff totally yeah totally totally she did not help him with that extremely flirtatious in a completely a completely safe way what does that even mean and why would anyone describe how could anyone describe the vice president of the united states as extremely flirtatious and people think that's normal that is not normal okay that is not a a normal situation and this was known folks you know there are two stories here really simultaneously one is biden's a creepy weirdo Uh, that's being established which i you know i think people should know i i just think they should know and the other especially given oh my gosh all the stories about trump and he's aggressive with women and the whole the the billy bush tape and you know they try to they try to take the presidency from trump because he is a very much an alpha kind of guy who you know goes for it he goes for the kiss you know he leans you know he, he he goes for it but he's not you know trump isn't like holding you know 12 year olds too close and nuzzling into their ears that he doesn't know i mean it's just weird man that's just weird But the media malpractice component of this is its own story. And it's just a reminder of what we're dealing with. These people have no ethics, no honesty about how they report on these people or what they're doing. It's all just for show. They're trying to get their team to win. And they've been covering this stuff up for Biden for years, uh, from Biden for years. It's known that Biden, for example, at his home in Delaware, liked to go swimming naked. That's right. They call it the full Biden They like to go swimming naked in front of female Secret Service agents. Okay, so he would just strip down to, you know, strip down to nothing but pure, unadulterated, 100% pure Biden. And I know you're like, oh, Buck, stop. I can't. I can't. I can't help you. That visual image, I cannot take it out of your brain. It is there now and you are stuck with it. and There's nothing I can do. I'm sorry. Uh, That's those are the breaks for today. But just imagine for a second, you know, I, mean, I, I have I have a little sister that I just I just think is the most amazing, amazing little sister on the planet. And if she were in the Secret Service, all right, just by way of, of comparison, and Biden would strip down totally naked in front of her, I'd have a problem with that. I wouldn't think that, you know, and if I were married and my wife were in the Secret Service and she had to watch some guy strip down totally naked and go swimming, I'd have a problem with that, too. It is unprofessional. This guy doesn't understand boundaries. He's a weirdo. But the media has just been covering this up. Media has been pretending that this isn't real, that this isn't a thing, nothing to worry about. But it is. 
it's gross and it's wrong. And this is just the beginning. For those of you like, Buck, I don't even care. Although we did get to talk about naked Biden swimming for a while. So you're welcome. But, you know, the, the truth is that there's going to be other stuff that comes out about Biden. I think it's also going to come out about some of his family dealings, by the way, or you know, the, the dealings of some people in his family. You've seen some of that reporting from uh, my colleagues at the Hill, uh, or at least some of that is coming out. I'm not sure when. The reality here is that Biden is a deeply unimpressive guy who just was in the right place at the right time and got lucky with Obama. Got lucky. He was the default choice, and that's it. And they're, they, the problem is the media, you know, the only reason we're hearing about this now, and Flores says this, the woman, the first woman who accused him, uh, the, the only reason you're hearing about it now is because the politics of the situation have changed. If Biden were far and away the choice of the day, if he were the Hillary of 2020, Lucy Flores, I think by her own admission, would not have come out and said anything. Because she says that this is a political decision. She says that she weighed this out and, you know, she really thought about it. And, you know, given that he's not necessarily the best candidate for the Democrats, she was willing to come out and speak the truth on this one. So there are other motivations uh, at play here with this information coming out. It should be noted that I think the Democrat establishment and the media would have covered for Biden on this. And we wouldn't know anything about this if it weren't the case, or rather, if Biden were the far and away lead for the Democrats to be their nominee in 2020. But because he's a little bit expendable, and maybe they, maybe some people want to push him out of the way, push him out of the way for Booker, for Harris, for the burn. Give him a shove. Get him out of the way. We'll be right back. So producer Mike sent me this as, as I was on air. M Mike, what's the... There's a second accuser now? What can you tell me about this one? Yeah, it just uh, popped up uh, uh, on Vox. There was a second uh, woman, as you said, who came out and uh, said Creepy Joe has inappropriately touched her. Is it more? Do we know if it's more? Um, oh, it's on Politico now, too. Second woman behind uh, accusation here. Let's see what you hear. I'll, I'll, a Connecticut woman accused Joe Biden of touching her inappropriately while she was volunteering at a political fundraiser in 2009. Amy Lapos, 43, told the Hartford Current on Monday that Biden pulled her close to him to rub noses while she was working at a fundraiser. What the heck is that? Biden's giving yeah. Biden's giving political volunteers, uh, I believe it, some people have referred to it as an Eskimo kiss. Oh, yeah. I mean, or is it an Inuit kiss? No offense, Inuits. <laughs> I'm just saying. This is rubbing noses? And the picture that I saw when the story broke, um, I was looking at it on Zero Hedge as well. If it's the picture of the girl who has made the accusation, she looks absolutely like horrified in the picture with him. Oh, my gosh. Quote, it wasn't sexual, but he did grab me by the head, Lapo said. He put his hand around my neck and pulled me in to rub noses with me. When he was pulling me in, I thought he was going to kiss me on the mouth. Wow. Wow. Um, that's, let's see, what do they say here to make this go away? What, what, are the, what are the libs? The libs are running defense for this. What are they saying? A Biden spokesman, this is all according to Politico, issued a blistering statement Monday morning calling interpretations of these resurfacing photos ugly urban legends. 
pointing to statements by those. Okay, well, no, they're photos, man. I don't think I don't think it's an urban legend if there's a photo. I think if there's a photo, then that's called evidence or proof, and then you can believe something uh, even more so because you have proof of it. Man, I I, I nose to nose, nose to nose kiss. I don't even know if like. I don't even know if you nose to nose kiss your girlfriend without letting her know what's going on. It's just like that's a that's that's a really weird one. I didn't know Biden did that. Now, folks, you could say to me, Buck, you know, it's he maybe he's just a little weird, a little a little quirky, a little you know. Uh, actually, I don't think any of you, I don't think any of you are saying that it's inappropriate. But I'm just you know, that's not that big a deal, and that it shouldn't be disqualifying. What should disqualify him is that he's a buffoon and he's he's not somebody that should be in charge of this country in any sane in any sane world that's all that's all fine and good uh what i would just say to that though is just think of what else they're hiding about biden and and what else we're not allowed to know about this guy and and the advantage the built-in electoral advantage that democrats have because of crap like this where there are stories that they would make they would make a watergate out of it this would be like snugglegate like if it were if Biden were Republican, he'd be like, oh, my gosh, nobody can feel safe snuggling because of Biden's nuzzling. You know, they did completely blow it, you know, blow this up and make it a huge deal. And because he's a Democrat there, they didn't talk about it until now. He's disposable because I think that they want him gone. He's old. He's white. He's male. That's not where the Democrat Party is right now. And the people that are supporting him are doing so out of a nostalgia for Obama and a sense of electability. But as we know from the last election, electability is a very dangerous thing to hang your hopes on. Hello? She was so electable, wasn't she? Not not really, though. Turned out that that was, that was what you could call an incorrect assumption that was made by many people on her behalf. These last two years and some months have certainly caused a lot of us to start speaking to an inanimate object called a television (laughs) and to shout at that thing. It has caused a lot of us to go through individual and group therapy. It has caused a lot of us to, to feel a bit of despair and depression and anxiety and fear that's not normal that's not okay that was kamala uh kamala rather harris who is talking about the psychological breakdown that liberals have had over the last two years you, you'll you'll note that i've said many times that this is a mass hysteria that trump has brought about a mass psychosis on the left and sometimes they will just admit it as she did there that this has psychologically broken them that they simply cannot deal, they, they cannot handle what has really been uh, happening here, what's really going on. Um, they create this alternate universe for themselves where everything that Trump does is literally worse than Hitler, when it is, in fact, nowhere in the same universe as anything that Hitler has done. But they are going to take all that animus that has been funneled into the Russia collusion delusion. They're going to take that, and now they're going to focus it more and more on uh, on socialism. I think that's that's going to be the transition. That is the uh, the expectation that we have for this. But it's, it's also going to be a particularly ugly election because the liberals know that their majority, and they've had 
really, even though they say Kennedy was a swing vote, I mean, they got their way on social issues um, and 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 just in general at the court on every major Supreme Court case um, that goes to the heart of the culture war stretching back now for a long time. Liberals tend to get their way. If they don't the first time, they'll get it the second time. And that's why over the weekend, Trump uh, saying I saw this. This was uh, reported on a few places that he's saving uh, Amy Coney Barrett for the Ruth Bader Ginsburg seat. I, I saw that reported over the weekend, um, understanding that now Trump would I think he's assuming in that scenario that he's got six more years in office, which is very let's hope very likely uh, at that point, Ruth Bader Ginsburg will be way up there in age. I, I don't even know. Uh, Mike, how old is she now? That's that's an important. I should know that uh, she's, is, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She is 86 years old, folks. So we're going to have a Supreme Court justice who's up into the 90s. Is she going to be on the Supreme Court when she's 100? You know, is, is there any point at which we recognize that that age and the effects, the deteriorating effects of, of age on uh, on memory and perhaps even on judgment comes into play. I mean, I, you know, I think when you're getting up to triple digits, I mean, good on you for making it that far. And, you know, you should take a bow and spend a lot of time with family and loved ones and, and enjoy life. But I don't know that you should be making policy decisions, essentially, because that's what the Supreme Court does now. We can all pretend that it's just a court, but we know that it does a lot more than that. Uh, I don't think we can make policy decisions or allow policy decisions to be possibly influenced by what is really a health issue. But Trump said that about Amy Coney Barrett, or at least it's reported he said that, knowing that this will drive liberals. I mean, if his election caused them to have a psychological breakdown, uh, the the progressive left will go into a state of hysterical self-immolation if Ruth Bader Ginsburg steps down from the court to retire and Trump is able to fill her seat with a a pretty young and uh, vibrant conservative mind like Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, the, the liberal fury on this is going to be something to behold. And I do think that ultimately there's th- that the, the biggest fear the left has of, of all things is that they will not have the seal of approval of the Supreme Court for the regime of infanticide through abortion that has existed in this country now since Roe v. Wade. And and that there will be both a, a policy reckoning and a kind of national moral reckoning that comes from, oh, the Supreme Court doesn't just say you can do this anytime for any reason whenever you want to. Liberals are going to gear up for this fight with everything that they have. And I, I noted that Pete uh, Buttigieg explained how he feels about Late, you know, this is the guy who's supposed to be, you know, he, he served in the military. He, uh, Rhodes Scholar, I think he went to Harvard, right? I mean, he's he's got some some impressive credentials. He's uh, he's openly gay. He's uh, married uh, to a man. I forget the guy's name, but I read about him over the weekend. And n- n- noticeably, though, Bernie Sanders and Buttigieg, this is this is an aside. They're not treated as minorities or as people uh, who are. A president, Bernie Sanders would be the first Jewish president. Buttigieg would be the first openly gay president. But liberals, because they're white males, white males are, are are not are not in fashion right now on the left. White males are they're not okay according to the leftist media. But Buttigieg is an extremist on abortion because to be a 
Democrat in good standing with the Democrat Party, with the far left, you have to be. You really have no choice. You have to be a supporter of this. Play eight. Do you support the late-term abortion legislation that was passed in the New York State Legislature uh, as well as in Virginia? I don't think we need more restrictions right now. And, uh, you know, uh, what I've learned in Indiana, being at a place where, uh, you know, a lot of my friends, a lot of my supporters even come from a different uh, place than I do, uh, being pro-choice. I just believe that when a woman is in that situation, uh, and when we're talking about some of those situations covered by that law, extremely difficult, painful, uh, uh, often medically uh, serious situations where life or health of the mother is at stake, uh, the involvement of a male government official like me is not helpful. Blather. All morally worthless blather. A male like me. Is that true of any other issue of moral or medical consequence, by the way? If, if your doctor walks in the room and says, hey, you, you know, you, you need to have your appendix out. You say, I'm sorry, you're a man. I want a female doctor. This is idiocy. I think Buttigieg is probably smart enough to know that, but he's also calculating enough to realize that the democrat left is the party of abortion for all nine months for any reason for every reason subsidized by the taxpayer and that is the single most important thing for the left and that's why if they lose a supreme court they would have to deal with an america that now gets to pass judgment on what has become the defining issue of progressives in the 20th and the 21st century post roe v wade He wants it released, but I'm not sure what you're saying. The media got wrong, but the media reported what, what the investigation was going on. The, I, other than the people in the media on the left, not on this network, I don't know anybody who got anything wrong. We didn't say that there was conspiracy. We said the Mueller was investigating conspiracy. So Tapper is delusional. I, I, I don't think he's lying there on purpose. I, I think he believes the crap that he just said over at CNN. And I don't feel the need to to just every day dunk on, although it's kind of fun. Sometimes it is fun to just, just, just dunk on their faces. I don't really feel the need to dunk that hard on the media for a lot of their mistakes and, and, and the things that have happened with regard to Russia, cause Russia collusion. Because I've known all along, and you've known too, that these people are frauds, right? The Tapper's concept, uh, the Tapper's idea that CNN isn't left is laughable. I mean, CNN is the heart of the hashtag resistance on television. CNN tried to go to the left of MSNBC on Russia collusion. They put people on television regularly and and did not challenge them, did not say, where is your evidence? They put people as, quote, analysts on hard news programs who said, you know, that, you know, the walls were closing in, that the other shoe's about to drop, that, you know, all this at a certain point, rampant speculation becomes its own conclusion. The damage is done whether you get to that event, whether you're correct or not. You know, if I go on air every night and say, well, this guy may be a murderer, guys. We're going to find out soon. Well, I'm pretty sure he's a murderer. I mean, I'm 99% sure this guy is a murderer. You say that every night, people start to think he's a murderer. And then six months later, when it turns out that, no, actually, he it wasn't him. It was Colonel Mustard in the solarium with a candlestick. You guys remember that? It's a great game. When people figure that out too late the damage is already done see journals are dishonest they are activists and they refuse to be honest about it because there's a power that comes 
a power that comes from the pretense of neutrality, which is what you get from CNN. It's what you get from the New York Times. This make believe, oh, we're just we're just reporting the facts, man. Yeah, we're just the facts here. No, that is not what is going on at these places. That is not their mission. That is not how they conduct themselves. It is not what they do. They are trying to help one team. Yeah, they're feeding an audience, but they're feeding an audience of people that agree with their left of center ideology. So I'm I'm willing to not spend too much of our time just you know doing donuts in the front yard of all liberal journos in our four by four. I mean, I, I don't necessarily want to just keep hammering on this, but I, I'm sorry, you know, Tapper, I'm not okay with the lie. I don't know anyone who got anything wrong. He said, I mean, he did. He got pretty heavily uh, slammed, as he should have on social media for this. People got fired from CNN, fired from their jobs, including, I believe, one who was nominated for a whatever journalists give themselves, not an Emmy, but the other thing. I don't you know, uh, Pulitzer. There you go. Who cares? Right. Uh, but somebody was nominated for a Pulitzer. I mean, you know, real, real journo types were fired from CNN for running a recklessly false, of course, anti-Trump story. And Dabber's like, oh, I don't understand. I don't remember anyone got anything wrong. They ran story after story. You know, if they're going to play this game, too, of, well, what our, what our reporters tweet and what our reporters say publicly is not the same as what a story is, well, what are the lines? There were all kinds of stories. I mean, you know, they, they reported that uh, Comey was going to testify that he never told Trump he wasn't under investigation and he was on and he did tell Trump that he wasn't under investigation. So, you know, that was wrong. That was a lot. I mean, there's there's lists and lists out there. But, folks, they're trying. This is the m- most uh, feverish effort in, you know, in, in American media history, I think, to try and rewrite the narrative before anybody can. Anybody can actually put the truth down, you know, to say, oh, we, we weren't that surprised by this. We knew this would happen. CNN was like watching a bunch of, of deranged, you know, uh, maniacs running around on TV every night talking about how the president's going to get arrested any minute. And people built careers on this. People made their names off of the fake collusion story. And it was fake. It was just the, the dossier, a bunch of people who hated Trump, like, okay, let's use this. We got this dossier thing and we're going to run with it like it's real. And we're going to you know, trash people based on the information in this. We're going to leak some of it. I mean, it, it's also obvious that it was an oppo effort to take down Trump that brought together the worst elements of the status left in this country, the media, the deep state and the FBI and the DOJ, uh, journal, you know, journalism plus permanent bureaucracy equals bad, bad things. I mean, those two forces working hand in hand should make everybody feel very uncomfortable. And they just have not in not a trace of humility about any of this. Not not even a a, a modicum, not a smidgen of self-doubt as a result of this massive i mean your tappers like i don't know anybody got anything wrong you know and you all know there's the show i mean i've i am I'm, I'm somebody who i don't know why people don't see through the what tapper does more easily some people do 
But the whole role he plays over at CNN is, oh, I'm the guy. You know, he asks one real question a month of a Democrat. Not a hard question, just a real question. Then he goes, oh, Jake, he's the gold standard of journalism. The guy's a demo, Democrat operative. And not a nice guy, by the way. Not a good guy. So why is it that people let him or some people let him get away with saying, we don't, I don't think we got anything wrong. Are you kidding me? CNN clowned itself going after Trump. I mean, they should have been honking their fake round red clown noses night after night on tv honk honk a bunch of jokers and you're gonna now walk around with this kind of chin wagging like we got everything right i mean uh, then you have little brian stelter over there which i mean every time producer mike likes it too every time tucker carlson calls him jeff zucker's eunuch or cnn's eunuch or whatever it is i kind of giggle because you know it's it's funny because it's kind of true um, but he's over there. He's like, ah, CNN. I think we just covered the story. I don't think we got to have this. I mean, if you're somebody that watches CNN and you are a religious CNN w- uh, viewer, and you don't think that you got played, that y- you don't feel dirty and violated intellectually by what CNN has done over the last two years, you're just not very smart. I, I don't know what else to say. You're, or, or you're just not really paying attention, or you're maybe delusional. I, I don't know. But there is no reasonable good faith way to come to come away from cnn's version of the russia collusion thing and and not feel like wow they're just the whole thing was a fraud um and and it's all just driven by this anti-trump animus which is really about a lot of it is, is cultural objection to trump and trumpism too you know remember how i've told you many times that liberals they hate guns but it's really guns are a proxy for gun owners uh, guns are an inanimate object, and they know that it's not going to stop. Their proposals won't stop violence. But every effort at gun control for a devoted leftist, for a true liberal, every time they can push gun control, it's it's an opportunity to stick their thumb in the eye of the people that aren't like them in this country, that don't share their vision of the country. People like most of you listening to this who, you know, believe in traditional Christianity, go to church on Sunday, believe in God, uh, believe in, you know, stable marriage, believe in, in, in a morality that is not contingent upon all situational ethics. I mean, you, know, you go down this, you know, believe in the right to bear arms, believe in American exceptionalism. All of those things are for the left to be despised. And so gun owners are really what they're trying to get at with their with their objections and 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 i I feel like that's the same you know that's often the same motivation you see from those in the media when when they get so upset about uh about trump they really also want want you know they they despise trump voters it's not just they don't like trump they really don't like the people who vote for trump and that pushes a lot of their because otherwise, it's just, they're maniacs. I mean, what is wrong with them? How did I know all along, without a single day, without a single day of doubt, that the Russia collusion thing was going to be a nothing burger? How did I know? Because well, I paid attention. Hour three, coming up. Why is central planning a bad thing? Well, as a, as a principle, why is it that, that we as conservatives say, you know what, I don't want central planning. Why is that so important to the conception of the American founding? Uh, Why is it that we have a system of federalism and local and state and then federal government and there's different overlapping but separate jurisdictions and there's all this 
it, all, all these different mechanisms of government to separate power, but also to localize decision making where appropriate. Well, it's because collective approaches, central planning, which is the core of any true program of socialism, never mind communism, but, but any true program of socialism is going to involve a lot of central planning. Why is it bad? Well, it's because the people that are the central planners, and history shows us this time and again, are inherently going to be forced to make decisions that are out of their depth. They will not be accountable rapidly enough and acutely enough that those who have to live under their decisions uh, will be able to push back effectively enough to stop the central planning from being, you know, either misplaced or or disastrous. I mean, sometimes it, and I want to talk to you about one of those disasters in in just a moment, but there are reasons why we oppose central planning. Uh, And it's, it's wrong in concept, but it's also wrong or it leads to disaster from the perspective of, of history. You need local improvisation. You need local knowledge and responsiveness to stimuli, whether you're talking about a market, you're talking about politics. You know, if you're hoping that the pothole that is in front of your house is going to get fixed because it keeps, you know, ripping tires off and bending the, I was going to say bend the radiator, but that would be quite a pothole. Bend the axle. There we go. Buck's car knowledge needs a little work. <laughs> I bent my radiator on that pothole. Uh, if you write a letter to Washington, D.C. to fix the pothole in front of your house, you're probably going to wait a really long time before that gets fixed. And you know that's a very simple way of explaining why central planning and a, a collectivized decision-making is by, by one core authority, right? Usually a central planning committee or... If you're looking in the context of the French Revolution, the Committee on Public Safety, one of the most horrifically terrifying organizations uh, in, in, you know, e- European 18th century history, probably the single most terrifying 18th century European invention. Um, a bunch of lawyers, by the way, the, the Committee on Public Safety that led to Le Terroir in France, the terror with Robespierre. Uh, they're a bunch of progressive lawyers. Yeah, they were the ones that were like, lop off their heads. Actually, it was more like, no, you must chop off their head because the revolution must live on. You know, that's that's what they sounded like. Very more like Pepe Le Pew, not like some guy from Boston. Hey, it's Phil. Lop off his head with the guillotine. Uh, But central planning is bad. Central planning can go awry. Central planning historically results in very, very bad outcomes to the people who have to live under them. And that's why when I hear people who are are talking about – the way that whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Ocasio-Cortez, there seems to be this, oh, well, if we just if we if we allow the centralized decision making to happen, everything will be more efficient. You know, that's always the promise because they, they think it's top down. They think it's just, oh, I say do this and then that's how it will happen. What they forget is that not only in a in a large enough system i mean the reason you want to localize decisions the reason you want to talk to your city council about the pothole and not the federal government in dc is one there's just decision fatigue two you can't actually have uh tailored solutions you're going to get just a one-size-fits-all approach when it's top down and three they don't care if they fail you, because there are too many, you know, the problem is too insignificant for the authority charged with it to want to do anything about it. So 
that's just philosophically an explanation as to why I'm so opposed, and I know most, if not all of you listening are so opposed, to many of these campaigns and these these programs of central planning uh, that are constantly being pushed by by progressives these days. And I just wanted to tell you the story of the Great Sparrow Campaign. I don't know how many of you know this one. Some of you might. Uh, but back in 1958, Mao, Mao Zedong, had pushed his country, had pushed China uh, into this rapid industrialization. It would come to be known as the Great Leap Forward, right? So the, the founding father of what is the People's Republic of China thought, you know what we're going to do? Because China was a desperately poor country. People forget this. In my lifetime, China went from, in 1980, a roughly $70 billion uh, GDP country with a billion-person population, $70 billion in GDP. That's shockingly low. To now a $7 trillion economy, $7 trillion. So it's gone up quite a bit over the course of 30 years. From $70 billion to $7 trillion is an astronomical leap for any economy to make. So, And we'll talk more another day about how they've done that, how they managed to create all this growth, and, and how I think U.S.-China policy has – uh, I'm a believer in the 100-year marathon thesis that the U.S. hasn't really understood what China's real goals are and that we miss – bar from Bush, we misunderestimate. We, uh, we underestimate China at our peril, and I think we, we have been doing that. But back in 1958, it was an incredibly poor country, m- mostly agrarian. Uh, people were just subsistence farmers. And Mao decides that the country needs to be uh, – pushed through a rapid kind of Chinese industrial revolution that's going to happen in in a couple of years instead of a few decades. And you think of the industrial revolution as it occurred in the West, and it took time and there were processes and you you had to build infrastructure and markets had to get set up and there was exchange of goods and, you know, enhancements and the steam engine and railroads and blah, 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 all that, right? That's how it happened. China is just like, we're just going to, we're just going to do it, man. Like, just get out of the countryside, move into the cities. We're going to have this rapid. And you can see from a central planning perspective, from a, and, a, and we're talking about now a communist state where the expectation, at least of the ruling elites and what's being sold to people, is that collectivist action is what will make everybody better off, wealthier, and everything else. But from a central planning perspective, it's... It seems sensible, doesn't it? And and these are these are the supposed to be the smartest people in the country. Well, what Mao, after he decided they were going to collectivize agriculture, so you're going to set up the agriculture's collectives, and a lot of people are going to move into the cities because of the uh, industrialization, had this four pests campaign because they were worried about human hygiene, which is a real which was a real problem, right? There are a lot of places that didn't have running water and plumbing. And so remember, these ideas that they come up with are based on real problems. And they and they are trying to solve them. But the the four pests campaign in China targeted rats, flies, and mosquitoes. But you know what else it targeted? Sparrows. Now you might say, Buck. I've heard you talk smack about fl- about mosquitoes, which is true. I hate mosquitoes, and I think we should genetically de-engineer them out of existence. 
Um, but, you know, rats, flies, you get why people don't like those. But why sparrows? I mean, but this is a, this is within, well, close to now living memory. I mean, it depends on how old we're talking about. But, you know, this is not long ago when the leader of one of the of the largest country on planet Earth is like, let's get rid of all the sparrows. Well, tweet, tweet, little birds. I want to get rid of them. As a side note, the common European house sparrow, for those of you who are bird watchers, I learned this from my father, is an invasive species that will kill all other songbirds by destroying their eggs in, in a, uh, you know, w- within the vicinity of where these sparrows make their home. So those little, those little suckers are tough, uh, and some people decide to get rid of them. But anyway, Mao decides to get rid of the sparrows. And the decision was that the sparrows were the decision was made because sparrows eat grain seeds. So the central planners are like, look, there's sparrow, there's huge flocks of sparrows. They're very hardy species and they're eating our grain seed. So we're going to have a lot more food if we just get all the sparrows. And this was a real program they, they they took sparrows that had numbered in the millions in a very short time, almost down to extinction. Everybody had, this was communist propaganda, everybody had to kill the sparrows. You know, top down. Imagine Trump going out, sparrows, we, uh, we got to kill the sparrows. Uh, and this happened. Ideas seem sensible. But you know what sparrows eat other than grain seed? Insects. They eat insects, especially in the early stages of their development. You know what's really important if you want to have a good harvest? That you don't locusts overrun your fields. You know what happens when you kill one of the main predators for locusts? You get a plague of locusts, which is what happened in China when they killed all the sparrows. In and By 1960, after two years of this campaign, uh, there was mass starvation. And that led to the Great Famine in China, which in China you're still not supposed to talk about. You're not allowed to talk about it. Uh, estimates range 25, 30 million. I've seen as high as uh, uh, 40 million. And I think there's even one historian, a revisionist historian, who says it's up to 60 million starved to death. Tens of millions of people starved to death in the 20th century in a country with a population that is the largest in the world. And it was in no small part driven by central government policy that decided to collectivize all the decision-making top-down and did not allow for local improvisation to field conditions or you know necessary uh, decisions about planting, any of that. It was, you do it this way or else, and then the people starved. So the Great Sparrow campaign, I mean, in a sense, it's a, a reminder of just how stupid and how tragic governments that have unfettered power can be. Because you know, they are not responsive to the needs of the people. And quite frankly, they usually don't care how much destruction results from their bad decision making. They are just pleased with themselves for being in power in the first place. So now you know about the Great Sparrow campaign, a real thing that led to one of the biggest starvations in history. And it was kill the birds so they stop eating our seeds. That was the basis of it. The president spent a lot of time on the, using the S word. 
Mm, Socialism and socialist. It was a not too subtle, I don't know whether it's a dig or a enhancement. I'll I'll let you decide. I was flattered. If you work 40 hours a week in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, you should be earning a living wage 15 bucks an hour. That's what it means. It means that we end the international disgrace of the United States being the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people as a right. We're going to make public colleges and universities tuition free. We have a moral obligation to leave a healthy planet to our children and grandchildren. We're going to stand up to Trump and we're going to transform our energy system in this country away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. Capitalism without rules is theft. Capitalism isn't to me is it's an ideology of capital. It means that we seek and prioritize profit and the accumulation of money above all else and we seek it at any human and environmental cost. And to me, that ideology is not sustainable and cannot be redeemed. The ideas so, okay, you know, we, you get the we idea. Been- uh, you, get, you get all this talk about, these are top Democrats in this country right now. We're just speaking about central planning, collectivist decision-making before this is now mainstream. In fact, this is, I would argue, in the vanguard of the Democratic Party. This is where they're going. I mean, this this is the future for the Democratic Party. They really believe in this stuff. And what's, I think, terrifying for a lot of us is, at least those of us who are paying attention, the, the recognition that these people that are talking about this stuff, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez, are functionally economic illiterates. They could not walk you through. I mean, if I asked Ocasio-Cortez, you know this is true, but if I asked Ocasio-Cortez, explain to me what the objection to central planning is, I assure you, she could not do it. She would not be able to walk you through why people think that central planning is generally a bad move for the government and that with with very few ideas national defense right because you and that's that's always the extreme you need to be able to you know tell the army to march in this direction and go right there there are some places so you don't have to send me this buck what about this yeah there are some places where you need centralized decision making structure but even within the military as any of you are in the military know yeah there's a top-down structure but there's a tremendous amount of improvisation and authority and decision making below the top level you know, the, the the strategy, the overall war aim may be top down, but, you know, you don't have four star generals saying, no, 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 don't go left to take that hill. Go right. At least generally you don't you don't have that. Uh, but they don't even understand why their ideas are wrong. And that's something that when, when I see that going on, uh, I, I get worried. I mean, you had AOC today tweet out this uh, cursants. I, I never know what to do with this one, because if you say croissant, you sound a little like a little frou-frou preppy type, you know, mais de croissant. But she wrote that croissants, that doesn't that sound so anyway, at LaGuardia are going for seven dollars a piece. Yet some people think getting a whole hour of personal dedicated human labor for fifteen dollars is too expensive. In this one tweet. Taken from today, which was not an April Fool's tweet. I mean, I, I I looked to make sure she didn't say April Fool's. Like, oh my gosh, like April Fool's Day, because AOC is so funny. 
it, it just shows you the degree of the ignorance that we're dealing with here. You know, does she understand? I mean, let, let, let's break this down for a second the, the, to her millions of social media followers. Does she understand why crappy, stale, super chewy, gross croissants at LaGuardia Airport are seven dollars? It's not because there's a shortage of flour that LaGuardia Airport is facing. It's because LaGuardia Airport has a monopoly on the food concessions that you can get after you go through security because there are dudes with guns who are like you know what you can't bring that through here although i think you can actually these days bring food if you x-ray it but in general because they have a forced scarcity they jack up the prices does she not understand that i'm not sure that she does i i think that she really just doesn't get you know why is hotel food so expensive it's not because it's so good And why is it that $15 is, quote, too expensive for human labor? Well, it's because there are cost inputs. There are market forces that either allow a company to stay in business and and make a profit or not that determine what that wage is. The wage is not just whatever somebody says it is. And this war on markets that you're seeing, which is inherently a war on decentralized decision making, is going to get much more um, focus from the Democrats, and it's incredibly damaging. People need to understand why markets work and why markets are the reason that you live, that we live in this incredible luxury as Americans today. They need to understand why, not just what the answer is, but how we get to the answer. AOC doesn't even know how little she knows. A stunning chart that talks about a problem that I I know some people are going to immediately latch on to some of their preferred narratives about, you know, Generation X or Generation Millennial or whatever. But this is this is troubling for us as a society. I mean, if if we're looking at societal health and we're all we're going to have an adult discussion here, folks, all right, this is not going to turn into some other kind of discussion. But if we're looking at societal health, uh, the fact that more than ever since they've been recording this, Americans are not having sex, that's not a good thing. We're talking about American adults, okay, and about 23% of them, nearly one in four, have spent the year in a celibate state And there's a much larger, this is according to the Washington Post, much larger than expected number of them were 20-something-year-old men. Experts, according to the Post here, who study American bedroom habits say there are a number of factors. Age is one of them. Okay, the 16-older demo is is a bigger part of the population. Uh, The share reporting no sex has been around 50% for them generally. But it's the other end of the age spectrum that's really surprising to people. The portion of Americans, 18 to 29, Reporting no sex in the past year has more than doubled, more than doubled between 2018 and uh, 2008 and 2018. It is now 23 percent. So almost one in four American uh, Americans between the age of 18 and 29 are not having sex. Um, And they're saying that part of this is economically driven. Um, and it's overwhelmingly men, by the way, 
who are the ones. So this is not women who are choosing to be chased or that that's not what the change is. It's not women who are waiting for marriage. It's it's guys. It's men who are in their 20s who are essentially what they call on the message boards incels, involuntary celibates. Now, look, this is a broad this is a broad data set to be sure. But I think that you can see some of the trends here, the the assault on masculinity, which is a very real cultural phenomenon in this country, the desire to downplay masculine virtues. And and it starts at a very young age. You know, there are all this all these lies about how, like, oh, they only call on boys in class. That's not true. They actually call on 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 girls more in classrooms than on boys. But, you know, they're they're saying that boys are badly behaved and boys just behave differently than girls at a young age. I mean, there's. There's so much about manhood right now that is is under assault, and it is a, a concerted social movement from the left to undercut masculinity. And, and I think that that is playing out in ways where, you know, millennial men are living at home more. They don't feel like they have as much purpose. They don't feel like they're appreciated. They don't feel like they need to be providers for And Look, I'm a gray beard millennial. I, I know all about this age demo and we have this culture that keeps telling them you know don't be don't be chivalrous don't be aggressive don't be sexist all these different things get mixed together it's no i mean you want to treat everybody as an individual and with dignity and and you should always act with honor and decency but chivalry is a good thing masculinity is a good thing testosterone is a building block of civilization maybe that's something that our culture needs a reminder of in, in a lot of ways that testosterone is is not some curse. It's not something that, you know, the, the XY chromosome uh, chromosomal mix is not something to shy away from. And, and I do think that you're starting to see this. And, you know, men and women pairing together. Biology is a very powerful force. And our society is fighting that in a way that is both unwise and certain to lose, but people are going to be very unhappy along the way. And I think we're seeing that right now. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Live from Savannah, Georgia, everybody. That's right. Down here at uh, the WTKS station in Savannah. They very kindly allowed the mobile Freedom Hut to get uh, set up. I am down here for a conference with my friends over at Stansbury Research. So uh, it's lovely where we're staying. Uh, We're right near Hilton Head, very pretty part of the country. Um, Unfortunately, Savannah decided to be like 40 degrees in April. So it is it is really cold outside here. So my my plan, which initially involved a whole lot of um, kayaking and outdoorsy stuff, has been a little bit. But, you know, hey, it means more time indoors to study up for the show, which is which is a good thing. Uh, so let's get to it, shall we? Facebook dot com slash Buck Sexton. Man, it's. Uh, at some point, I'll be back in the Freedom Hut in D.C. That will be nice. It feels like it's been a while. A lot a lot of travel lately. A lot of travel. Rachel kicking us off today. Hello, Buck. I just want to give you some uh, encouragement in regards to your Lululemon pants. 
My husband owns two pairs of those pants, his favorite being the ABC pants. ABC is an acronym and also the reason my husband likes them so much. Who cares what brand it is as long as they're comfortable and allow you to get your job done with maximum comfort. Thank you for the hard work you put in the show every day. Shield tie, Rachel from where else? California. Rachel, I'm going to tell you something. Your hus- your hubs and I, we own the same pants. So there you have it. I also own the ABC pants. They're very, very comfortable. Um, I They're not as manly as my 5'11 tactical pants, but they are nonetheless very comfortable. So there's that. Corey writes, sending out a wave to the Freedom Hut as I truck my way through the swamp with a load bound for Atlanta. Keep doing what you do. Well, Corey, shield tie to you, my friend. Thank you so much for reaching out. Good to uh, good to hear from you. I appreciate it. And I hope that your load gets there to Atlanta. Very important. Commerce, baby. Love commerce. Let's see what we got here. Rich. Speaking of love, love your podcast via iHeart. Just a note, at this point in the era of obvious fail of higher education, which you often allude to, referencing opponent's schooling from a fifth-tier school, etc., it makes you come across a bit preppy when critiquing their ideas should suffice. Oh, your Bernie impression is far better than Ben Shapiro's. Well, I agree with you that my Bernie impression is number one, although I do have respect for Ben Shapiro's Bernie. It is, it is solid. Mine is... Mine is just in, in a class by itself, I think, of the, of the impressions of Bernie. Uh, as for fifth-tier schools, I, I will tell you something, my friend. I try only to do that in cases where people are using their credentialing as some kind of a, a rolling pin to whack other people with. You know, well, I went to this place, so I'm so smart. Um, I, I could have gone to a number of Ivy League graduate schools. I went to Amherst for undergrad. It, it, none of it is, is as impressive as people like you to believe. Um, and uh, so if I if I err and just say someone's from a fifth tier school because I'm just being a little bit of a, you know, I'm being a little little impish. Well, then that's on me and uh, my bad. But if it's somebody who's like, well, I have a PhD from whatever, so I know all about this subject, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Uh, and especially if they're, you know, you get this a lot with professors, okay? I mean, that's really, I think, what you're probably alluding to. You have these professors that say, well, I have a PhD and I'm a, I'm a tenured professor or whatever. It's like, well, you have a PhD in a subject that not that many people really care about in a school that not that many people want to go to. So I don't think that national policy discussion should unduly be influenced by your uh professorial wisdom so that's when i that's when sometimes that comes out a little bit but i'll I'll keep an i'll keep an eye on the preppiness although i'm a little bit preppy i mean boat shoes polo shirts there's just some some stuff that you know you got to be who you are right i mean at least you know i don't i don't run around with you know a mohawk and tats all over my arms being like yeah i'm a brooklyn hipster what's up although mohawks Mohawks are going to make a comeback. Some of you right now, although it would be cultural appropriation because they're named, named for the Mohawk Indians, there, there will be backlash if the Mohawk ever does make. We'll have to come up with a new name for it, like you know the, the, human, the human porcupine or something. There'll have to be a new way to describe it. But I'm, I'm, you're hearing it from me first. I told you Crocs would make a comeback, and they did for like a day. And I think, I think that uh, Mohawk as a countercultural hairstyle is going to make a comeback. The faux hawk was trendy for a little while, not to be confused with the outright mohawk. Scott, 
Uh, I typically listen to you through the Blaze iHeartRadio app on the Blaze channel. Am I getting you live? Yes, Scott. The Blaze Radio app is how you listen is is how you can listen to me live. If you ever want to listen in real time, you know the podcast is put up uh, after the show. Sometimes, if we have a couple of interviews or something, the podcast might even be up a little bit before the show because uh, we might have finished a little a little bit earlier. But generally speaking, the podcast is post end of show, and the iHeart app lets you listen in real time. So, yes, you should um, definitely listen on the iHeartRadio app live, 6 to 9 Eastern, anywhere. All you, Folks, all you need is either cell service or Wi-Fi, and you can listen to this show live anytime on your smartphone. Just remember that. It's really easy. You don't have to listen on your local station, although we love our local affiliates, and there's something kind of special about tuning in that way. Uh, but if you can't, you know, if you're away from your home base, if you're away from your local station, you can listen on the iHeartRadio app. Uh, John writes, been a fan since the real news days. Whoa, John, original Saturday squad then. Uh, how do we get Trump to act on the border? Lots he can do. Take away funding for sanctuary cities. Stop all the welfare programs. Stop the flow of money being sent back to home countries. Shut down the border. Send massive amounts of troops to the border. Why aren't we still do? Why are we still doing this uh, catch and release? Is this just a campaign issue or now? The Mueller report is out. Will things change? Um, John, I like your can-do attitude, and I appreciate that you actually would like to see the border get fixed instead of the border just get talked about. But if we're going to talk about this, I have to be honest with you and tell you that there are problems with the approaches you'd like to see. Um, not that, So it's not that you're wrong. It's just they may not work the way you intend them to uh for example um if you try to take away funding for sanctuary cities it goes to the courts and guess what the courts are packed with a lot of libs and they will say that you can't take away funding from those sanctuary cities so that's one way that you can see this becomes an issue um stopping all the welfare programs technically illegal aliens should not be able to access any welfare programs now i'm not saying that is reality i'm just saying that is already the law see one of the problems we were in run into is that when you have mass lawlessness when you have people that are ignoring laws in a systematic fashion uh, then the impulse is to pass more laws to fix the lack of attention and enforcement of those initial laws well guess what if the law didn't work the first time around second time around it's probably not going to work either you could say well buck maybe stiffer penalties stiffer punishment but remember, the reason that our immigration laws are not enforced is because there is not the political will to enforce them. People don't want to make it happen. Law enforcement, politicians, you know, it depends on where you are. Some places law enforcement really wishes they can enforce that politicians won't let them. Other places you get to sanctuary jurisdictions like San Francisco, you know, local sheriff, he, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want you to enforce uh, immigration laws. He doesn't want you to enforce uh, those those federal statutes. So it really depends. And the one that I find the most interesting is you wrote here, stop the flow of money being sent back to home countries. I mean, the estimates are that 20 billion with a B. And that was some years ago. It's probably closer to 25 or 30 billion now. But it was about 20 billion with a B in untaxed remittances get sent back to Mexico to help, you know, to help their economy, essentially. I mean, it goes into the into the Mexican economy and 
that that is a, a source of very important hard currency for that country and it is a place where we have uh, a pressure point so that that's a very that's an interesting idea shutting down the border that's a little bit of cutting off your nose to spite your face uh the, the border getting shut down entirely is going to get is going to get challenged immediately by a lot of business interests and i think it's a political loser and, and i'm sympathetic to the trump administration's problem here because you know obama cracked the door open and then in time or maybe you could say Obama put the crack in the dam and over time now it's just turned into a massive fracture and now a flood. Uh, you need to have different immigration laws. You need to change the way asylum is done. So that's all very, very important. Um, it's There's only so much the president can do, though. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's where the real problem comes about here. There's only so much that can be done by the president of the United States. And remember, he gets challenged. The executive branch gets challenged uh, under this administration by the judiciary in a way that's clearly driven by the hashtag resistance mentality. It's not real, honest, jurisprudential opposition. It's anything to stop orange man, Trump, Trump bad. That's what the judges, especially in the Ninth Circuit, but elsewhere, too. That is what they're doing. Cindy writes, yes. Ben has a Beto, and you two should totally do a show together. Love your Hillary. Always makes my day to hear it. Love the show. And shields high, Cindy. Well, thank you, Cindy. I don't even know if that sounds like Hillary more. If that's, you guys just know that that's like my Hillary noise. It does not sound like her, but, you know. Elizabeth Warren is kind of, you know, she's just trying to be likable. She's almost at Hillary level. She's kind of similar. And then there's Beto. Who just like wants the whole country to infuse their desires and hopes um you know that's the way it is and that's the way it was uh let's see what we get here chuck um look at what twitter got all upset over chuck sent me something here i don't know what that's all about uh what's next here jeremy Chico's Tacos is a great place to eat. If you like pizza, Dion's. This is for El Paso. I get pepperoni with green chili. It's a New Mexico thing. There are also some great Mexican restaurants right by the border. As always, shields high. You might need them in El Paso, Jeremy. Jeremy, thanks for the Rex, my friend. I did go to a place called Ellen, Ellen J's, I think. It was good. It was fun. Uh, you know, it was, it was nice kind of bar-style Mexican food. Uh, El Paso cuisine was nice. So we got that going for us. All right, team, that's going to be it for the show today. Thank you uh, so very much for being here. We will uh, be back in Savannah live tomorrow. Same time, same place. As always, Shields High.